Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Sattler, one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. I want to say thank you for joining us in person. And for those who are watching online today, it's great to be together. There'll be no preteen in the service today. Uh, Pastor Michelle's away, and you're just going to have to listen to me. Sorry about that. Today we resume our series in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah and God's Great Faithfulness. Around 626 BC, the prophet Jeremiah is commissioned to call out and to call back God's people who have lost their way again. And for the next 41 years, Jeremiah ministers, and he agonizes over both the message that he's to deliver, and he shudders at the conduct and plight of his people. There will be consequences for their sins. Israel has committed double idolatry. They've replaced their God with images of other foreign gods made of wood and stone. And by messing around with other gods, they've cheated on their God who married himself to Israel after the Exodus in the covenant at Mount Sinai. Now to warm us up for today's sermon, I want to take another straw poll. I want to encourage you to keep score on your papers. We'll also have a chance for a show of hands for those of you who feel comfortable sharing your results. And there'll be a diagnostic, a revealing diagnostic at the end of the three questions. So you need to keep score. Okay, question number one. When things go wrong, are you quick to A, take personal responsibility or B, blame others? How many of you vote for A, take personal responsibility? Okay. How many of you are quick to blame others? That's me, for sure, B. I am a great blame shifter. Question number two. When looking for direction, do you prefer A, old familiar methods, or B, new untried methods? How many of you choose A, old familiar methods? Yes, I like those people. How many of you choose new untried methods? Oh, man, you guys are the real entrepreneurs here. All right, question number three. Do you typically look to the future, A, with hope, or B, with gloom? All right, how many of you vote for A, with hope? How many of you with gloom? Not many people with me. I am a pessimist, an eternal pessimist. Okay, if you scored B-A-B like me, this message is for you. The rest of you, it's nap time. I know some of you look like you could use a nap. Some of you are already nodding off. Much of the population of the northern tribes, generally referred to in the text as Israel or Jacob or Ephraim, has already been hauled off to captivity in Babylon. And now only the southern tribes remain. Judah and Benjamin, collectively called Judah, and closest in vicinity to Jerusalem. After many chapters warning about sin and coming judgment, we come to Jeremiah 31, where the Lord, through the prophet, paints a beautiful picture of another great exodus and a new covenant better than the old. With enemy siege engines pounding the walls, and Babylonian armies encroaching on Jerusalem from prison. Not a very safe or hopeful place. The prophet Jeremiah offers this surprising message. There is hope for your future. 
And we pick up the story here in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read a lot of verses this morning. They'll be on the big screen. You can fire it up on your mobile device, or you could use the blue Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Here we go, Jeremiah 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. And then verse 9. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father, declares the Lord, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Rachel, restore, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from, and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I've been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him declares the Lord. Verse 25, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this, Jeremiah says, I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. Verse 31 The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This 
is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Thank you for listening to these amazing words in Jeremiah 31. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, I ask that you would come now and apply the truth of these incredible words to our lives and to us gathered here today, April the 16th, 2023. Spirit of God, would you come and move me out of the way and come and speak to us. Jesus, we're hungry to hear from you. And we pray that you would give us hearts to receive the message today. Come, Holy Spirit. We're hungry. Would you speak to us? In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. This gripping depiction of God's covenant love is a breath of fresh air. If you've been following our Jeremiah series, you have you would detect a different flavor in the language. It switches here in chapter 31 from the cold rhetoric of a courtroom to the deep personal emotion of a parent. Here God speaks lovingly about drawing his children back to himself, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. God says, my children will find me eventually. They will be drawn back to me because I love them with an everlasting love. And I sense this is a message that some need to hear this morning. Perhaps you're sitting in church today feeling unlovely. Maybe you're in church today feeling unlovable. Be reminded of this, the God of the universe loves you with an everlasting love. As the song goes, God, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Contracts, modern day patron-client agreements, often contested or simply broken, They don't quite cover it. Used to establish formal relationships, mostly between two equal parties, covenants were prevalent in the ancient world. So that God initiates this covenant with people is quite extraordinary. At that time, it says in verse 1, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. And again in verse 33, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ten times, eight in the Old Testament and twice in the New, God expresses his relationship with his people using these exact covenant words. And one could say that this sums up the grand theme of the entire Bible, beginning in Genesis and culminating in Revelation. And I heard a voice from heaven, from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's important to pause here a moment. God is a family God. In himself, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Community, family, fashioned right into the Godhead. 
And part of being created in the image of God is that God places everyone into a family. And God desires to be the God of all families, starting with Israel, and now God invites us, his followers, to be part of the family of God. Now, I tread carefully here, because I know not all of our experiences of family on earth are positive. This is hard, for sure. But I believe that God's church, in all its beauty and mess, is equipped to be a family for people, even for those who don't have family or live far away from loved ones. And when God brings people together from vastly different walks of life to worship him, to form a church family, it's a beautiful display of his handiwork. Plus, God is preparing us for eternity to be living in his family forever. This is something to look forward to. Against all odds, God here renews his covenant with his people despite their blatant sin and wholesale rebellion. That God doesn't simply take the out clause and end it right there is rather surprising. Graciously, covenant renewal is always on God's heart. God says, they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them. So to still call them virgin Israel, after all the spiritual promiscuity they've committed, says a lot about God's incredible mercy. Verse 20, is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have compassion for him, declares the Lord. And here we hear and feel the father heart of God beating for his children. Sure, he's had to discipline his unruly kids, even allow them to be taken prisoner to Babylon. But Father God now waits with open arms. His heart yearns for his prodigal children to return. And to the parents in the room, we never stop loving our children. Yet it's so hard when they turn away or don't seem to be coming back. And I want to encourage you, parents, having had his own father heart broken, God gets it. He feels for you. And God loves your children. He has them. And God is with you in your pain. Chapter 31 marks the high point in the book of Jeremiah. It's often considered the watershed of the entire Old Testament. Why so? Well, Here, more than 500 years before it came, Jeremiah is the first to prophesy there's going to be a new covenant. Not like the covenant God made with your forefathers. So just how is this new covenant different from the old? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are several clues in the text. Verse 30. Instead, Jeremiah says, everyone will die for their own sin. Personal responsibility before God will feature in the new covenant. Instead of riding on the spiritual coattails of parents or reaping the consequences of the sins of past generations, in the new covenant, there'll be no familiar place to hide or to blame others. It's us before God called to account. Each person responsible for their own actions. Beginning of verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In the past, only certain people had direct access to God. 
The rest had to keep their distance. And through Moses, the high priest, and the Levites, God communicated to his people. However, the new covenant features God's direct access and opens up the possibility of personal relationship with God available to all from the least to the greatest. Another magnificent feature of the new covenant is God's forgiveness and remission of sins without animal sacrifice. God became the sacrifice. End of verse 34, the Lord declares, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Well, as you can imagine, it's time now to land the plane on some application points. What does the new covenant mean for us today? I have four application points for us today that I'd like to offer humbly to us as we think about the new covenant today. The first is on encountering the God of grace. Perhaps you grew up in church with the rules of Christianity drilled into you, dominating the teaching content. Thou shalt not. Sure, there were the Ten Commandments, but there were a lot of other add-ons. Don't drink, don't dance, don't listen to rock and roll. As if by not doing or by being against these things, one could get closer to God. Yes, God's law is good. But perfect law-keeping is impossible for humans. And priding ourselves on keeping the law and ticking all the boxes is not what God wants from us. To me, it seems many fall away who've been discipled only in law-keeping. And lately, I've witnessed many long-time Christians deconstruct the faith of their upbringing and check out or run away altogether angry. And I believe this is fueled in part by the fact they've never really met the God of grace themselves, a glorious feature of the new covenant. Listen to these inviting words that Olivier read at the beginning of the service, Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. I'm not sure where you're coming from today, but if you've never met him before, The God of grace longs to introduce himself. You may say, Sattler, you don't know me. I got a rap sheet a mile long. If God only found out, he'd reject me in a heartbeat. Simply not true. God already knows everything about us. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and God still loves us more than we could ever imagine. Here's the point. Until we encounter the God of grace, we will never possess a faith that truly lasts or sustains. The God of grace invites us to draw near to him in loving relationship. Second application point I offer this morning is this. It's about receiving the indwelling Holy Spirit. The God of the Christian story is deeply personal. From the outset, God desires relationship with his creation. 
And while humanity's stubborn refusal to obey God continues to place a barrier between holy God and sinful us, God continues to pursue his creation. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the cry of God's heart. And throughout history, God goes to great lengths to bridge this gap. He mediates his presence through the leaders, the priests, the prophets, and kings of old. God's glory comes and fills the temple. And then 2,000 years ago, God the Son Jesus comes to earth to be one of us. He's even given the name Emmanuel, God with us. And in John 20, the resurrected Jesus comes. Says this, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord again. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And days later at Pentecost, God pours out his spirit on people from all nations. Just as he promised here in Jeremiah 31, God goes one step farther The Holy Spirit indwells the hearts of believers. God goes from writing the law on tablets of stone to writing his law on our hearts. This is nothing short of remarkable and represents both the gift of God's presence and the deep work of transformation that God offers his people through his spirit should we choose to surrender and cooperate. Friends of North Shore Alliance Church, when we invite Jesus into our lives, the new birth is not done there. Post-salvation, by his spirit, God longs to do an ongoing, sanctifying work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ, to transform our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, our relationships, to change how we use our time, how we spend our money, how we invest our talent. God wishes to realign our desires to his will. And over the years, it's been such a joy for me to witness God doing this in many of your lives. In these days, may our hearts be open to receive more of the life and ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. Third application point is this, finding hope in Jesus in the face of hardship. In prison, the prophet Jeremiah wakes from his too-good-to-be-too-dream-too-good-to-be-true dream, and God says, all those hopeful things you've just been dreaming about, I'm actually going to make them happen. Again, you will take up your timbrels. What are those things? Are they drums of some sort? And go out to dance with the joyful. No way. God says, Rachel... Dear wife of Jacob, who's long dead, it says, will weep no more. Rachel's the mother of Ephraim, whose descendants have already been carted off to Babylon for years. She's also the mother of Benjamin, whose family's about to be taken captive. Restrain your ears, God says. Your children will return, Rachel. I will bring them back. There is hope for you and your family and your future. This is the word of the Lord. So what is it you're hoping for these days? Maybe you've 
been struggling living far away from loved ones. Some of you who are new to Canada, you fled some difficult situations and your loved ones are in trouble. And you probably long to be together. Some of us have loved ones that we long to have come back home. Or perhaps today you're facing a massive life obstacle that's near impossible to see through. Maybe you're grieving a big loss. Or you're finding it tough to feel hopeful about your future. Yes, it's often difficult to imagine securing a meaningful bill-paying job, to imagine solid, loyal friendships, affording a place to live in this city, feeling healthy enough to live again, or having something, anything to look forward to. And truthfully, hope takes a lot of courage. It's a lot risky. It's risky to, to hope. It's less risky to simply languish and allow despair and cynicism to run our lives. But the God of the Christian story is the God of hope. He provides unshakable hope even when everything else is being shaken. I love how one commentator puts it, hope acts on the conviction that God will complete the work that he has begun even when appearances, especially when appearances oppose it. In the face of hardship and loss, may God today give us courage to hold on to the hope that he alone provides. Fourth and final application. It's on celebrating the new covenant. Inaugurated, big word for a little boy like me, I know. Inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The new covenant is founded on the love and sacrifice of our Lord. His willingness to lay down his life for all humanity. Knowing we can never keep our side of the bargain, God steps in and he does the work himself to keep the covenant alive. God declares the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people. And Jeremiah 31, 31 is realized centuries later in the words of Jesus at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is the only person who ever fulfilled the law, making him the perfect sacrifice on the cross to cover the sin of all humanity. We may try to do more good than bad to win God's favor, or be better than most, or at least that guy. There's a recent study that I read this week that the new moral line is set with Hitler, don't be like Hitler. Everything else is okay. We may pursue good karma, try to be the best version of ourselves, but none of these attempts will ever suffice. And there's a powerful reminder here in this meal that God stepped in and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We can never, none of us, by our own efforts, be good enough to win God's favor or deal with sin on our own. It's why God offers this new proposal, the new covenant to us. Through his life, death, and resurrection, God reminds us to stop trying to make it on our own and to put our faith in him. Amen.
If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you're invited to participate in communion. If you're not ready, that's fine. You are welcome to stay in your seat or come forward for a blessing. And in a moment, you can come forward or in the balcony, you can go to the back. Please hold your hand out and your server will put a small piece of bread in your hand and say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And then you can take that bread and dip it, the end of it, not too deep, into the cup and your server will say, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And then you can eat the bread. If you need gluten-free options, we'll have them available here in the center aisle. Please come to this aisle if this is for you. I want to invite the worship team and servers to come now and take their places. Immediately following communion during the songs, if there's something on your heart that you would like prayer for, our prayer team would love to pray for you. Dan and Andrea will be serving communion, then they'll be back over there in the uh, alcove to pray for you. Before we take communion today, I'd like to lead us in the confession prayer. Let's stand and let's read the confession, pray the confession prayer together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Please come.